This is the Speaker for the Living podcast, exploring the depths of human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 30th episode of Speaker for the Living. My name is Seth there, and that was JJ Janflone. And uh, this being our 30th episode, we're going to uh, reintroduce ourselves, and uh, we will be talking about bar girls and related topics, but we'll get more into that in a moment. So, uh, I graduated from the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver, in Denver, in March with a degree in international human rights, with a concentration in forced labor and human trafficking. My undergrad, long ago, was in uh, speech and radio communication. And travel-wise, I have spent about a month in East Africa, mostly Nigeria. I've been to Tijuana, Mexico, so whether I've been to Mexico or not is debatable. But uh, <laughs> I haven't seen the real Mexico there. I, I've, I wanted to say something flattering. But uh, I spent eight months in New Zealand. It was rough, but no, not really. It was uh, very beautiful. Got to be there for Lord of the Rings world premiere, things like that. And more relevantly, I, if that's a word, in 2011-2012, uh, I went to Southeast Asia and I spent a month getting an ESL certification because I wanted to do a little bit of that in Vietnam, so a month in Vietnam, and eight months in Cambodia with some side trips, brief side trips to uh, Malaysia and Thailand, Bangkok, and then I spent three weeks in India, a couple weeks in Hyderabad, and a few days in Bangalore. So those are the really quick uh, things there. Uh, now, aside from doing this podcast, I'm spending one time in my previous job, current job, of uh, doing internet marketing, and I also am researching extremism at the Colorado Resilience Collaborative. And uh, my internet job is with Crown Point Solutions. And uh, who knows where everything will go from here. Presumably more podcast. Yeah. Welcome to the modern world, Seth, where you've got 9,000 jobs. So who are you, JJ? That is the question. Oh. Or, or maybe just uh, say a few things about what, say, where you've been and what you've done. I don't have answers for hardly any of those questions. <laughs> um, so just, just background, my name is JJ Janflone. Uh, my full real name is Jillian Don Joan Janflone. But since that's not fun for people to say... Uh, I go by JJ. <laughs> um, I am still at the Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver. I got my master's there. Uh, that's where I met Seth while we were both um, in and then working for the Human Trafficking Center. That's housed there. However, after I, I was there for two years and got my master's. And then after that, I was lucky enough to matriculate into their PhD program, which also is an international studies but where I am focusing primarily on international relations and comparative politics with a focus on human trafficking, gender, and then sort of the, the bigger thing I've been working on now after, after my first year, I'm looking forward to comps and then I'll get into sort of the dissertation writing stage. But what I've been playing around a lot with is, is how we assign basically who are the good guys and who are the bad guys, who, who are the victims and the heroes and, and who are the perpetrators uh, in both human trafficking and then sort of other sort of standard international relations conflicts, say, like with migrant workers and the people who employ them. So I'm not nearly as well-traveled as Seth. I've never been to Canada. <laughs> I've never been to Mexico. Uh, my North America travels are, like, between six states. I'm, uh, however, because of my background, I did... My undergrad was in creative writing uh, with minors in international relations, Chinese language, and Chinese history and culture. That's now been – basically my three minors together became um, 
uh, China Studies major the year after I left. So I kind of missed out on that. But I think having three minors makes me look way more impressive than I actually am in real life. So I'll take it. <laughs> uh, and then after I graduated, I went to China for about three and a half, four years in, in what basically turned into a paid internship to a job, to another job, to another job, to another job, all working for Tsinghua University, which is a phenomenal school there. But essentially my, my job changed pretty much every three months because like so much in life, uh, in particular jobs in, in China are a lot of like t just showing up and physically being in country <laughs> make, makes you first pick. Um, and then I, after doing some volunteer work, particularly focusing on female migrant rights in, in China, I decided I wanted to get my master's, which is why I came to Corbell, which is where I met Seth. And then I did human trafficking. And then we started this podcast. And now we've got 30 of them. And why you guys keep listening to us, particularly me, I'm not quite sure, but it makes me really happy. <laughs> so here, here we are. I'm one year down to what could be anywhere from an additional three to seven years. So we'll see. You know, we'll see, we'll see where that takes us. Um, but I think, I think it's encouraging, Seth, I don't know about you, but like every week when we end this podcast, because Seth and I normally cast about once a week, I'm immediately like, okay, I have an idea for six more that I want to do like right now. So that makes me happy a lot. Um, just that the amount of topics we have just keep growing and particularly in terms of topics that are being suggested to us by people who listen that makes me really happy that you guys have taken an interest human trafficking is kind of going mainstream and i think every academic or researcher really hopes that that happens if only because awareness does tend to have this little side piece to it that comes with increased funding and i know from the other the other thing that i do like Seth, I do I do work. So I work as a research assistant at the University of Denver. I also have a job working at a leasing company for an apartment complex because I need money. And I work as the media and marketing director for SWAN Colorado, which is the social wellness advocacy network. And we work with men and women who are either A, leaving prostitution, B, dealing with prostitution relation charges, or C, victims of sex trafficking. So from that little intersection, you know, and we are perpetually underfunded. Uh, the head of our uh, nonprofit, Billy McIntyre, is just like perpetually going from one grant to another to try and, and get our clients who are, who are victims services. And it's almost impossible. So the more of you that are listening and the more of you that are paying attention, ideally, you know, the more of you that are writing to your local law enforcement and politicians and maybe the more funding that gets kicked not just to our way but to other organizations so thanks for listening guys it makes me really happy all right well today's topic i will contribute to but it's mostly in your court so jj what are we going to talk about we're going to talk about bar girls and then bar boys as well <laughs> but primarily bar girls uh, Seth, do you want to tell the listeners at home what a bar girl is? We're, we're just going to be sort of particularly gendered because the vast majority of reporting does come in that this is a female-centric issue. So also, we didn't come up with the term bar girls. By bar girls, we're not implying that they're children or that they're under the age of 18. It's just it's the term that is used. So some of these are, are technically, in quotes, girls they're under the age of 18 some of them are over the age of 18 and are women but bar girls is the term that is primarily used to describe them so now that i'm not gonna get angry tweets seth what, what's a bar girl well the essence of a bar girl as i have seen them in southeast mm -hmm. asia is a girl who is or a woman who is at a bar and mm -hmm. dressed very nicely to attract men of all ages and who will try to entice them over or come over to them, depending on the place. But the, the, the main thing is to give men company and for men to buy them expensive drinks because the drinks are way overpriced and that's part of the way that they make money. It's part of the entire business model. And it, could be conversation and little nudging and just 
Uh, all those feminine wiles. Thinking Firefly when I say that. Yeah. And uh, depending on the, the establishment, there may also be pressure of varying degrees to offer to take the man to a hotel or home for a price, which can be negotiated, depend again, depending on the place. Yeah, so basically it's 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 company as we talked about in our in our episode we were talking we were talking about sort of hostess bars where we touched on this, I think. It's companionship with generally the option or the illusion that more is coming. I feel like with bar girls though, rather than with hostessing, it's kind of an understood that the norm is probably for some sort of sexual service to be offered beyond company. And at least that's been the experience that I've had. Uh, traveling around primarily East Asia, a little bit of Southeast Asia. But what you need to understand too, listeners, when I'm talking about like anecdotal evidence, that my experience uh, going into one of these places, going into a bar that has bar girls, because I am female, is going to be different than sort of the one that Seth had or that Seth had access to. Because just, just because you're male, you know, I'm not a potential client. So there's no real money to be made off of me beyond like just what the bartender can sell me where with potentially the idea of a man coming in, particularly like in heavy tourist areas, whether he's Western or or not, is that's that's sort of where the money is. Um, what we're talking about in this episode specifically is not sort of the process of being a bar girl. There are plenty of people who work as either as bar girls or as we'll talk about later bar boys you know so there are men and women who choose to work in this industry because they make good money uh in some cases because they get to meet lots of different interesting people you know i'm very introverted so the thought of having to talk to people who are strangers <laughs> day in and day out particularly while they get drunk is insane to me but i have friends that you know, I think actually would probably kill at that sort of job, just being able to talk to strangers, talk consistently. The What we are talking about, though, are the ones who are engaged in this work non-consensually. So these are men and women that have been forced into working at these bars and providing both company and then later on these sexual services and what I think is very much a combination of labor and sex trafficking, because these are also people who are working at the bar. So they're pouring the drinks, they're being the bar back, they're talking, they're putting forth a lot of emotional labor to keep customers happy. A lot of times, particularly with females, they're dancing as well. It's it's not necessarily a sort of strip club-like atmosphere, it's more of a fun party atmosphere, but it's selling this idea to a typically male client that they are sort of the big man on campus, that they get all the attention, they get all the women in the room. And the girls... If it's consensual, ideally are getting paid a portion of all the beverages that are bought for them, all of the beverages that are bought by the client, and then when it comes time for sexual services to be exchanged, they're they're making something with a percentage of that going to the house as sort of house rent. What we see in situations where it's a non-consensual interaction, if people are given any money in this exchange, it's a tiny amount it's not nearly enough for their labor but then most importantly there's no option to say no there's no option to pick a client there's no option to say no to a client there's no option to quit there's no option to leave and there's certainly no option that if say you have a client who is mistreating you and causing you like anything from from mental to physical harm you don't have any recourse against that when you are a non-consensual worker because you're being held there against your will and so that's the type of our girl and boy situation we'll be speaking of here we're also not really going to touch on well yeah so i guess maybe we have to rethink of naming this episode because we're not really or at least i didn't intend to touch on the children who occasionally are in these situations or, or minors, people under the age of 18. So people who actually do hit the definition of girl or boy, because to me, that's an entirely different sort of trafficking. To me, that's child trafficking. That's pedophilia or pederasty happening perhaps in the same realm or Avenue as what's happening with the, the buying and selling of 
bar men and women, but to me it's it's a it's a it's a different category because not only is it a different category legally, but it's a different type of client. It's it's a different situation. And I think it would actually be better suited for us to talk about when we're talking about sort of child crimes or child sex crimes to actually have a fully dedicated podcast that we could put a little bit more time um, and attention on. I don't know how you feel about that, Seth, but. Yeah, although I can't help but think that telling the age, me not being from Asia and being mm -hmm. Caucasian telling the difference between a 20 year old a 16 year old and a 15 year old is very difficult oh yeah but i mean it's hard it's hard in the u.s too and particularly mm -hmm. when you think when you think of what the bar culture is particularly for women it's heels tight clothing a lot of makeup you know very done hair things that don't necessarily it's not like you're gonna walk in and someone's gonna be like hello i go to such and such middle school like it's not my, my thing is, at least in my experience, is the places that were known to deal with suspiciously young-looking barmaids were known for having suspiciously young-looking barmaids. Does that make sense? Like, the, it was kind of the word on the street in the expat community that if you went to such and such a bar these are the types of girls that were there, but you didn't want to go to this bar because that was for, for the creeps and, and, and the weirdos. And perhaps we should talk about that in an additional podcast, sort of this idea of sex tourism of people who go into these communities mm -hmm. and buy from these patrons and know things are happening, but justify it to themselves that what they're doing isn't as bad as what's happening at a place across the street. So they don't need to report it. Yeah. But I'll, I'll do a little prepping just to give some people some yeah. context from my experience. So I, I spent time in uh, the tourist district in Ho Chi Minh and the uh, tourist district, mostly riverside of Phnom Penh, Cambodia. So Vietnam and Cambodia. And uh, in Vietnam, despite some of that being more illegal, it mm -hmm. it's, it's really flagrant. And yeah. there are, you know, numerous bars and some of them, the girls are actually, you know, putting their legs out in tight dresses and actually trying to, and calling out to people to come in. Mm -hmm. And it was the same in China, same. And uh, a little less obvious in Phnom Penh. And, and this is where you break out, like, to what JJ was saying, you have tourist districts where it might be a little safe, like you might have a better idea of what the women are, their experiences. And then there's other places that are less public that mm -hmm. people go to. But as I was walking around as somebody who in 2011, 2012, who cared about trafficking and like, I, I looked and I'm like, I have no idea what any of their experiences are. Like, yeah. it's like, I, it's like, what would it take? And that, that wasn't my primary reason to be there to research this. So it was like, what would it take to know? And the fact that I didn't know concerned me. I, I did go on to some local forums to read what expats had to say in various topics. And uh, I had a friend or two had, who had talked to bar girls and so on. And so I can say from listening to their narratives and stuff, at least some of the girls worked voluntarily and could be hired and fired. And, you know, what percentage work freely and what percentage don't? Like, that's that's one hard research question. And it's one you even if you ask, it's not something where you're necessarily going to get an honest answer all the time. Mm -hmm. But that's why, the, you know, an underground type of economy is hard to research and, and in this case like like even when they're doing it quote voluntarily and even when going home at night is optional it's sort of optional it mm -hmm. might it might yeah. impact how long you're you're able to actually work there uh you're standing at the place so you know just just to kind of give the the grasp of what it looks like for somebody like me. Like there was one time where we went to a bar uh, to meet um, 
a guy uh, to talk about the ketchup and, you know, looking around and then suddenly realizing that there were bar girls who were there to selectively chat up men. Mm-hmm. And it took like 10 minutes of looking around before I even realized it. Yeah. And so it's it's an interesting thing, but it's it's the divide of every time you go into a bar and you see a 20-year-old Asian girl with a 60-year-old man does not mean yeah. does, does yeah, I mean, does not mean that it is sex trafficking. There's a lot of other things you could say about it. Yeah, but yeah. it's it's not necessarily and I and I want to make this clear, I think because that the majority of of you and I's sort of life experience in terms of like working and and seeing sort of human trafficking situations firsthand and interacting with do come from East Asia. I do want to make it clear that the the bar girl or sort of the barmaid phenomenon is not just a sort of Asian or Middle Eastern thing. In particular, what I'm going to pull up is a report from Polaris, which we, we've mentioned before, uh, which is a phenomenal anti-trafficking organization and research organization that released a, a press release in September of 2016 about young women and girls from Latin America being brought into bars in the U.S. And talks about how they identified 1,300 potential victims in cases in the U.S. and Puerto Rico of women and female minors who were brought up uh, into the United States to work at cantinas and sort of restaurants that served both Western and Latin men. And that's outlined in a larger report called More Than Drinks for Sale, Exposing Sex Trafficking in Cantinas and Bars in the U.S., which we will link to you. But it essentially details how even in the U.S. there are these commercial front brothels that look like bars, that look like nightclubs, but meanwhile have people who are slaves within them who are used for cooking, cleaning, pouring of the drinks, but also for entertaining and then sexually servicing men. And so this is something that is not just tied to one race or one ethnic background or even one geographical location. This is a worldwide phenomenon. I think just one, because of our own experiences, and then also culturally. I feel like when whenever I've seen this, I hate to use Law & Order SVU as my litmus test for the average American, but I'm gonna. You know, I see when I feel like these things are mentioned, it's, it's always something based out of Thailand or Vietnam that that's where this is happening. And it's not. It happens in New York City. It happens in Omaha. And it also happens, you know, in Beijing. Like, it just, this is just a thing that happens. And a shout out to all you women out there who work in hospitality restaurants and service industry and put up with a lot of crap from men. Yep. <laughs> and maybe, and maybe you know what? We'll do a small shout out to the boys, too talking specifically about there are specialty bars where men serve as sort of I, I would I you know I don't, I don't have a good term for it like not necessarily barmaids but but bar boys again these are some people who might be minors but I think we need to focus on that separately but for the most part these are these are young adults certainly this is an industry where the younger you look or seem to be you know that seems to help the idea of sex sell but these um, gentlemen are also trafficked and are selling their services to mostly men, but in some cases women as well, in order to – this isn't like survival sex. This isn't like an order to survive to make flat money. This is an order to not be punished by the people who have trafficked them that are forcing them into this situation. And I think that's kind of, Seth, what you were talking about earlier is that I think what it's hard sometimes for people not in the field to understand is that there's a difference between doing something of your own free will and agency. Like there's like levels, right? So there's doing something of your own free will and agency and being safe. Then there's doing something and being exploited, which if, if this is your only option to you job-wise because of historical or cultural or social factors – if you know 
if you are being underpaid, if you are working in a dangerous environment that is unsafe, if you are being harmed at work, that to me is exploitation. And then there's trafficking, where all elements of choice have been removed. And so even while under exploitation, you're bound by a lot of restriction and a lot of strictures, and a trafficking situation, your ability to move, your ability to have agency is really, really withheld. Right. Psychologically speaking, you feel trapped. Yeah. I mean, you might feel trapped, though, in exploitation. I think it's just a different type of, of feeling trapped. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a different type of thing. And so I don't want to seem heartless when we, you know, when you and I are like, well, that's just exploitation. It's not trafficking. It's not that exploitation doesn't matter. It does. And in fact, probably the population that is exploited is larger than the population that is trafficked because trafficking is such an extreme thing, right? To actually put another human being into bondage. But for me, because trafficking is such an extreme attack on another person's humanity, that's that's what sort of draws my my interest. And, you know, how does this happen? How does this progress and occur? And maybe we'll have to get somebody who's like just an expert on exploitation on the podcast one day just to to really hammer that home. But one of the things that I think is important to stress about maybe the easiest way to do this is to just like start like what the journey of someone is who is trafficked in these situations, right? I think that that might be helpful for listeners. So go for it. So yeah. So trafficking, and I say this because I was just at a talk recently and someone was like, well, like, how does this even happen? I was like, oh, good. Like I have a flow chart in my head. I should make a real one be the most depressing flow chart in the world. So here's, here's basically how it rolls down. You are in some way as an individual vulnerable. We all are, we all have vulnerabilities, but some of us are far more vulnerable than others, right? Mm -hmm. Some of us are, are at far higher of a disadvantage for whatever reason. And I think we actually outlined that pretty well in the psychological, uh, trauma sort of podcast where we broke sort of down the levels of, of trauma and whatnot that someone could be going through. But so let's say that you don't have a lot of options, you don't have a lot of protection, you're not considered a person of value by your community or your family, and you know that girls who move to the city make a lot of money just talking to guys in bars. This is, say, like, we'll say, like, a legitimate sort of hostess-style bar. So you go to the city to take a job at one of those bars, but for whatever reason, you can't get one. They're not hiring. Another bar that appears similar to the one that you had connections in, that you thought was safe, says, oh, we'll hire you. So you sign up to do that job, working at what you thought was just going to be sort of talking, drinking, socializing, Uh, if any sort of like sexual contact, it'd be more like flirting, maybe a little bit of stripping. And then you find out once you arrive there that this is actually a bar that's run by a criminal enterprise. They now consider that you work for them. This is where the story sort of the branding or tattooing of workers comes out because it becomes known that you work for them and only for them. You're not permitted to leave the bar. You're forced to have sex with patrons. The money goes to the people who work in the bar. And because of the culture you've been raised in, you either A, have no one to contact or B, the shame of having to contact someone and say, you know, I thought I was doing the right thing, but I, I'm in this situation now. I need help is so limited. Or if, if there are people who care and love you and do get your message, they don't have any means to help you either. So that's a pretty common thing. And you can substitute bar girl and working in a bar with pretty much any job. I went to get a job as a tomato picker. I went to get a job as a nanny. I went to go get a job as a school teacher. We've even seen in the case here in Denver, which I'll link to, some nurses, so trained medical professionals from Nicaragua had this happen to them coming to the United States. So that sort of scenario, almost I I call it almost like a sort of a bait and switch once you arrive isn't super uncommon. The other thing that happens is a recruiter comes 
either directly or sort of passively. So either online or via flyer or via coming to, you know, the hometown area, a recruiter puts out a message. We have job X sign a contract with us, come work with us. You'll be, you know, working in the bar as a waitress. And then when they arrive at the job, sometimes having to had to take out loans for travel that were then paid by the business, the business says, well, you owe us three grand. And until you pay that back, you can't leave. We're going to beat you. We know where your family lives. We'll seriously cause harm to them if you try to run away or try to leave or don't listen to us. And by the way, we will set how this price is repaid. So it may be that you only get $5 per man that we make you service, but then we charge you $10 a day for your room and board that you have no choice on. And it just keeps building up. And again, replace bar with any sort of agricultural business, factory work, house cleaning. I think Seth, we've heard these stories how many times and they all sort of follow this very similar introductory path it's because it works they've yeah. figured out a formula of deceit and and entrapment and they keep using it and it gets and really discouraging hearing the same thing over and over again and again and one of the things that you'll that, that i hear from people who are unfamiliar with it is sort of these mentions of okay well why don't they call the police or why don't they become involved why don't they seek out you know help otherwise Living in a country where you trust the police force is very rare. There are parts of the United States where large swaths of the population don't trust the police, and for good reason. And I say that as the daughter of a cop that I love. You know, I'm very pro-police, but there are countries and there are places where you cannot trust the police. There are places where police might be your clients and that's those are places that have a functioning police force that you can call right you may not be able to trust the police you may not be able to trust the courts you may not be able to trust the law in general depends yeah, you cert you certainly not everyone has an embassy they can go to that's interested in saving you You know, not everyone has a passport. And then bear in mind, too, that if any sort of behavior is taken in that could be considered illicit or a crime. So say you're moving from an extremely economically depressed country to a country that's next door and you used fake documents or fake papers. You might be more afraid of the deportation or what you've been told will happen to you because of the deportation from the police than the beatings that you receive by your captors. We've talked about this, I think, really well in the North Korean podcast, both of them, where we talked about how if you're a North Korean in China and you're caught by the Chinese police, even if you're reporting that you've been trafficked, you're going to get deported back to North Korea and you're going to be killed. So you kind of have to make and evaluate these choices. This is also, too, maintaining that there's a there's a some sort of 911 that can be called. There's some sort of 911 that will then dispatch an officer that can be trusted, but it's also that the person calling that A knows what number to call, and B, once having made that call, is is able to speak the local language and is able to communicate with them. I know from my travels, sort of, you know, in Western China where dialects are very common, particularly with older generations. There, there were dialects that were so far different from Mandarin. They were, in, you know, distinguishable. And what was I going to do? I also know, weirdly enough, from when I was in Italy as a student. One night when I was in Italy as a student, random story time, uh, a guy that we had been traveling with got horrendously sick passed out having a hard time breathing just fever through the roof it got to the point where i think we had to put him like in a bathtub to try and keep his fever down it happened very quickly and it's a group of us who spoke a week's worth of italian pre-internet <laughs> being on smartphones you know i think somebody had a track phone trying to figure out how to call 911 
or the equivalent in Italy and how to explain that we were pretty sure our friend was dying and we didn't know why. And ultimately, we were saved by a traveling German couple who, because there were a lot of girls crying in the hallway, like stopped by to yell at us. And we were like, he needs help. And they were wonderful polygots who spoke like fluent Italian and English and German. And they called him an ambulance. But I had no, I had no idea what to do. Uh, we couldn't be helped. And this was a group of college educated or in the process of clearly very privileged students who had access in some ways to the internet, had access to phones, and we're in a country where at least there are a, a large population of people who speak English. Now, imagine if we had been, say, a group of Vietnamese students there with a very sick friend who spoke a dialect as well, maybe not the nationally understood language. What would be the chances that someone would come and help us? Or be able to tell, because you know, there's sort of similar mannerisms in, in Western countries of like being upset. It sort of reads the same way, you know, someone crying in public or someone kind of like flailing your hands around. It reads the same way that somebody stopping by was like, oh, there's clearly something wrong here. So when you have people traveling who don't speak the local language, even if they're asking for help, it doesn't translate. Or even if they're showing that they're in distress, it might not sort of culturally translate that, oh, this is a problem. Yeah, well, and to uh, say something really positive about non-Western countries and, and many developing countries yeah. that are non-Western, like in the U.S., even now where there's a lot of cynicism about institutions, we still get mad when the law doesn't work. Yeah. We still have an expectation that if I go to a different state that I'm going to be able to talk to the cops probably that I might be able to go to court, etc. that the laws are not going to vary heavily place to place at least. Or if that the laws do vary, it's because there's been a miscarriage of justice and I just need to let enough people know about it and it'll be rectified. And if some of you think of exceptions, I get that. I'm making mm -hmm. a point that in other countries where it isn't as much about the rule of law, it's about your network of relationships. Mm -hmm. That very much so. Countries, you know, your local community and how things are done in the village, uh, your network of friends and relationships in business, like it's extremely important in lots of other countries, like more so than the average place in America. And so when you when you take people out of their country, you know, then you might have different language, different you know laws, culture, etc. But if you take somebody from rural China to Beijing, yeah, then there's also a difference. And uh, oh, what yeah. what might some of those differences be between like rural China and a city? Well, one, your your connections and network are are vastly limited. Yeah, you know that's changed a lot. And then two. You know, I think I think coming, or at least when I tell people about, you know, because China is sort of my area of focus in the U.S., there's this idea that China is sort of a monolith and there's one sort of Chinese person. And that's not the kit. You can't have over a billion people and have everyone be. They're not all the same? No. I'm you joking, can't have... of course, people. I know, I know. You're still going to get angry tweets and I can't wait. <laughs> people just send me genitalia on Twitter and it makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> I would rather I would rather people yell at me for, like, the content of my character <laughs> rather than being like, and a penis will make her angry anyway. Um, no. So it's, it's, you're looking at a wide swath of different ethnic minorities, people that have regional dialects, people who have um, sort of smaller regional dialects. So like, for example, the way I equate it to is if you would go back in time to when, um, the U.S. was forced, first formed as a country, right? And you have people from all over the world in colony systems. And somebody from, say, Pennsylvania colony travels to the Massachusetts colony, and there's, like, a distinct difference in speech. But pretend that... Um, 
what's also fundamentally changing too is like cultural norms, what's set behavior, what's an expectation. And while the writing, the, the communists were pretty firm that they wanted all the writing to be the same. And while uh, dialects are not formally taught in schools or, or put on television or books or things like that, I think except for like as tourist attractions, it nevertheless is true that you're going to have some people who, especially if they haven't been through a formalized school education system, aren't really going to speak Mandarin or they're not going to speak it well and they're going to feel uncomfortable. I know that personally, um, my Mandarin teachers were always Southern from Southern China. So they had kind of a, a twang. I guess the easiest way to describe it would be like somebody from Kentucky, you know, like a sort of Kentuckian, like deep Kentuckian twang. Uh, and when I first moved to Beijing, who has a very sort of formal sort of, uh, the English, the equivalent of English that like a newscaster on television has that sort of received pronunciation English, I would get made fun of by taxi drivers because they'd be like, why do you sound like a farmer? Like, what's wrong with you? Like, how is it that a foreigner picked up this bad pronunciation? And it's not that it's a bad pronunciation. I was taught by phenomenal university professors who had degrees in linguistics i still got made fun of and then of course my husband picked up beautiful like mandarin like beijing putonghua pronunciation and everyone was like oh he's so great <laughs> and i got real mad because <laughs> i still have a really bad southern accent so you're gonna see those big differences it's it's the same uh compare it to like if somebody from mexico went to brazil and so you have this mix of spanish and portuguese which is someone who doesn't speak either language might sound very similar, but in fact are fundamentally different languages. And then of course you just have like the rural and the city divide. So for all those reasons, somebody coming in into a city they're unfamiliar with, it's not necessarily easy to know what your situation is, know what's true and get help. And it's, and it's also too, there's also sort of the fear. One of these things that we talked about in this like gospel coercion thing is there's sort of this fear that if I was promised to be paid and I need, I need this money for, for something, I need it for my family. I need it for my survival. And I've been promised if I can just wait this out for two years that I will get paid. Then there's this fear to leave because then all of this will have been for nothing. So I'm just going to, I'm going to wait it out. And that causes on top of the psychological coercion, on top of the trauma, on top of the not knowing how to get out in many cases. And then you add in too many times that there are other outside threats too, that if you do call the police or you do try to run, we'll, we'll find out we'll kill you. If you do try to run, if you do try to get away, we'll kill your family. We'll harm somebody who you're close to who also works at the bar you know it's using people's goodness against them and that's and that's very sad and it continues and it's and as seth i think as you said it's one of those things where it's hard for patrons or clients or or, or johns or whatever you want to call them to know if someone is trafficked or not it's not enough to ask because there's always something else happening Anything you want to add with Seth? So uh, I had referred to the challenge of detection and that, you know, I'm in Cambodia and like, I don't know whether it's 5% or trafficked or it's 50% or, you know, there's some people that might've done estimates, but uh, JJ, do you have any data on that? Uh, yeah. In any no. country? <laughs> no? No. And that's, that's the part so this is the part with sex trafficking that makes me want to put my head in a vice. I mean, there are actually a lot of parts, but this is the part that like just the pure academic research number part of myself wants me to put my head in a vice. So here's the problem. I'll get reports like say that report from Polaris that actually was able to identify 1300 victims. And that's legitimate. Those are 1300 victims. But that doesn't mean that we can extrapolate that every U.S. city has 1,300 victims as well. It doesn't mean that we can say every city and every country in the world has 1,300 as well. All that it means was that in this particular year, at this particular time, in this particular instance, 1,300 
women in particular from a particular area were identified and self-identified as being victims of trafficking. There are agencies and places that will take this one little data point and will then try to extrapolate how many people exist in the world are trafficked. And to me, that's actually kind of insulting because it's not fair to treat people like they're a number that can be fudged to make it seem like, because now we can say that a quarter of a million people have been trafficked, it's more of a big deal. It's the same deal, whether it's one or a million. No one should be a slave. It's not okay. We should still care, again, whether it's 1,300 or 13. Finding stats on sex trafficking is really hard because particularly in East Asian and a lot now coming out of sort of former Soviet Union bloc countries because they're they're known for sex trafficking, unfortunately, uh, now at the moment since the economic downturn is that you have a lot of NGOs that do sort of raid and rescue practices, which is they'll find like a bar or they'll find a brothel that's known to have prostitution. They'll raid it either with law enforcement or with their own people. They'll take all of the women or men working there and they'll remove them to another place. Well, then people are given the option of sort of like they're forcibly saved because it's illegal. So it's either they say that they were victims or they're arrested. And so that skews the data because then you have people who are there consensually, people who are there being exploited and people who are there and trafficked and they're all linked together in this very unfortunate group. And if you wanna read a really fantastic book on this, I suggest Sex Slaves and Global Discourse Masters by Joe Dozema because she talks about this a little bit, this weird intermingling of, well, they're women, so they they must be victims. Women would never consent to sell sex. They must be victims. Everyone's a victim in this situation. Now, it may be true that when they've raided a particular place that actually all the people there are victims, but there's no way to know that for sure. There's, there's no careful record keeping. And then what happens too is that in a lot of these things, it's it's a catch and release. People are caught. People are briefly treated. They're talked to. And then they're released immediately back into the community with no support network and no money, very few options. And so it's not uncommon for the same people to then be re-trafficked. We talked about this again. I keep harping on it because I love that podcast. I think we did such a good job with it. And it was mostly Seth, the psychological coercion podcast is that people tend to be victimized again because they're vulnerable to it. And so you have then instances of maybe the same person being counted as a victim who's been quote unquote saved in a year five or six times. And it skews the data and it makes it really hard for us to figure out exactly how big this problem is and where it is, except from anecdotal stories. And it's great that some places are doing job retraining, whether it's to sewing or uh, Hagar International, which used to be an NGO and now is a for-profit endeavor Mm -hmm. in Cambodia. That doesn't mean it can't be good, but it's Cambodia, so I get a little bit skeptical. But because programs are started without actually always asking people what they want, there are a number of people who don't see sewing as a career they want. So in those cases, like especially if we're going to focus on sex workers who are voluntary to some degree versus trafficking victims, like the sex workers are on record in Cambodia saying sewing is not that great. No, and they make less money. (laughs) If you are a consensual sex worker, you're making, it's a fundamental step down money-wise that they might need for other things. And also too, like forcing someone to go from something they were doing consensually to something they didn't want to do consensually, but they're being forced to do it, that is still, it's a little too close for trafficking on the definitional terms to make me happy. When I, yeah. when I can't find clear stats, to make a long story short, when I can't find clear stats or stats that 
I can follow the methodology for, I don't cite them. Because to me, I would rather just be like, look, these are the stories we have. We've heard that anecdotally, this is what's happening. We have personal experiences. We have victim impact statements. And we have a number of legal policy documents that say in a particular town at a particular time, this you know, person was identified or this group of people were identified as being victims. I would rather to do that than throw out 15% of all women because I don't know. I don't. And I don't want to pretend like I do. And and so that's where I sit. Other other organizations will have a different perspective on it. But like, if I can't even find like a, per, like Polaris didn't even have stats on this. And Polaris normally has like phenomenal statistics that they've done great research on. And so if they can't find it, I'm probably not going to be able to find it. More research. More research. We need it. And more funding and for more funding for research. And and I hear a lot of people who are who are interested in human rights. Maybe this is just because I've I've been interacting with a lot of undergrads lately. But I hear people who are interested in human rights and they're like, oh, but you know, I really want to go into finance, or oh, but you know, I'm really into math. Like, no, we need you. <laughs> Human rights will be well served by people with strong STEM or mathematics backgrounds. Like, we need people who know how to do quant work. Like, it's important. I mean, you can you can be human rights and humanities love and still know how to run a stats program and still know how to run a survey. It's It's not that that's exclusionary. But if you're someone who really, really wants to do, like, population studies, come to human rights. Come to human trafficking. We'll love you. We will probably give you an award or at the very least i will give you an award send me a message i will send you a little trophy all right so that will be it for this week yep i would really love it if all of you if, if someone changes their major send me a message i will legit send you a trophy and i will make sure that it has a clear supply chain it will be a trophy without fear <laughs> of exploitative materials I promise. But all right. Thank you, guys, uh, guys, for 30 fantastic episodes. Thank you, Seth. Seth is the... This is really Seth's baby. He's just nice enough to let me come and, like, yell at him and all of you once a week. But he he puts in... And don't you dare cut this out. I'll be so mad at you if you do. <laughs> Seth puts in all the like all the heavy lifting, all the hard work. He's done all the back-end stuff. He does all of the planning. This is, like... Seth kills it. And then I just kind of roll in and ramble. But so everyone, I think, should clap for Seth now off in their, in their little place like he's Tinkerbell. And you're bringing a fairy back to life because <laughs> he deserves it. Thank you, JJ. You And uh, you are a master rambler. Thank you. You know, that creative writing degree had to be good for something. It's true. <laughs> uh, debt. All right. Well, <laughs> bye, everybody. Bye. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.